A controversial abortion bill passes the House and skyrocketing spending for payroll. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of March 11th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. All right, right off the bat, we've got to cover uh, what arguably has been the most significant discussion on uh, either House or Senate floor this year, uh, and that had to do with last Thursday, uh, the uh, controversial abortion ban legislation that was ultimately approved in uh, the House. Natalie, take us through sort of the basics. What are the kind of nuts and bolts of that legislation? Well, let's start with a little bit of background. That Tennessee Right to Life, that is the main anti-abortion advocacy group here in the state, has been opposed to this legislation, as they have in previous years, and as have three of the Catholic dioceses in the state. So what this legislation would do um, is it would would prohibit abortions from being able to be performed after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, That is often somewhere around six weeks. And so that would make this one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. We know that this has been struck down elsewhere, such as in January, uh, when when a state judge struck down Iowa's fetal heartbeat bill and ruled that it was unconstitutional uh, at at the Iowa Supreme Court. Groups here in Tennessee, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood of Tennessee, they've all already said they're going to file suit if this does also pass in the Senate and become law. So the advocates for this bill, though, say that essentially this is necessary because... Well, to quote uh, Representative Micah Van Hus, it is necessary to save babies' lives. Um, They would say that this legislation... um, yeah, is is necessary to continue the the fight against abortion, uh, and even some abortion opponents, such as Tennessee Right to Life, would would also say that legislation like this could take the state into murky territory where there's concern about um, other restrictions already be in place in the state being in jeopardy. Now, some of the lawmakers being aware of that possibility that the way. Micah Van Huss, that was a sponsor of the bill, the way his his legislation was initially written, there was some concern that if this passes and then if it were struck down subsequently, that it could actually undermine the state's existing abortion restrictions, like the the ban on abortions after 20 weeks, um, things like that. So uh, Matthew Hill, he's, a, he's another representative, he introduced... Uh, an amendment that would basically ensure that the current 20-week uh, ban remains in place if if this law is subsequently struck down. One of the more interesting arguments against this legislation uh, that I've heard from Republicans as well as Democrats, but uh, specifically Republicans, is the idea that um, uh, a vote for this could eventually lead to a legal battle, which could eventually lead to the state losing that legal battle, which could eventually lead to Planned Parenthood uh, getting additional funding for, uh, I guess it's it's general purposes, including uh, providing abortions. So uh, yeah, well, Bill Don on the on the floor of the House, he he said, and I quote: "My concern with the bill as drafted is number one, it will probably never save a life if we go by what's happened." in the past. Sounds like he's, you know, referring to other states where this bill, this law actually went nowhere. And then he said, if it's challenging the courts, it's going to drive up a legal bill. So our money is going to be going to pro-abortion groups. That's uh, an argument also reiterated by Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally last week. The Senate has yet to actually take up any 
uh, substantive action on this legislation. Yeah, it's not even calendared, is it? No, no. It's still, I believe, in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, another one of the uh, more interesting points made on the House floor was this uh, idea that there are no exceptions in this legislation. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the sticking points for several Republicans that have given them a little bit of unease on this, uh, given that in the case of rape and incest, the person that has that child has to have that child. Yeah, and we we heard from at least one, we heard from a couple uh female Democrats on on the floor of the House who expressed concern that there was no exception for that. The the representative who had filed that amendment to create a provision where, you know, victims of rape and incest could uh, have access to an abortion, she was never called on to speak about her amendment. Um, there was sort of this, this scenario unfolding where Cassido wasn't calling on Gloria Johnson. She was the one who had that amendment. Um, and then discussion was ended uh, before she ever had the opportunity to talk about what she wanted uh, to do with that. Uh, we did hear from London Lamar. She she said, as a woman who's of childbearing age, and she pointed out the fact that she was maybe the only one. There's a couple old folks. Yeah, in the, she uh, she pointed she pointed out the fact that she was possibly the only woman in in the house who could still give birth, which didn't go over too well. Um, most of the Republicans sort of rolled their eyes. Some of them were even laughing. They seemed like they were in disbelief that she said that. Um, and then. House Minority Leader Karen Camper also spoke up and said that she didn't think that this this was compassionate to to leave that exception out. Again, we are going to continue to track this. It has made it through one chamber. Uh, we're unclear whether the governor's office uh, really has a firm stance against this. He has uh, expressed some support for actually pushing forward on a legal challenge, though. Um, we have yet to see what the Senate's going to do, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, in other news. There's some uh, legislative payroll story that uh, kind of raised some feathers last week. Yeah, I guess. so so uh, Joel here had a story he broke about how spending under Speaker Glenn Cassidy's office has increased over you know previous uh, leadership roles such as Beth Harwell and her staff. Joel, tell us a little bit about how you found out this information what you found out. So essentially, I decided at one point, uh, I was going to ask the uh, legislative administrative director, uh, Connie Ridley, for a bunch of salary data. I asked for uh, the speaker's office's salaries, like uh, titles, positions, salaries, hire date, etc. Um, I asked for it in four different intervals, four years. So one was this year, one was last year, uh, one was in 17, and then another in 2011. Those different dates are significant because in 11, it's when uh, Speaker Harwell well took over. Uh, 17 was when McNally, uh, Lieutenant Governor McNally took over for Ron Ramsey. 18 just to have a base compared to last year and now this year. Uh, essentially what I found was um, by looking at four different areas or three different areas, I guess it was, uh, the speaker's office, legislative leaders, as well as committee members, that ink, that money had gone up to pay for those people in various roles. Uh, the speaker's office has two people uh, just under $200,000 salaries, including the speaker's chief of staff, who makes uh, about one ninety nine, dollars uh, as well as Scott Gilmer, who is the former speaker uh, Harwell's chief of staff, who has retained his, essentially his 
salary and gone up six thousand. And you know th- those salaries are are that's that's good money. You know that's in and of itself. That's that's interesting to find out what they're making. But I think what was most astounding to people was finding out how much Cade Cothran, Cassidy's chief of staff, made last year. Yeah. So so Cade made uh, about sixty eight thousand. So he got a hundred and thirty thousand dollar pay increase, which uh, Mike Stewart noted uh, is significantly higher than the uh, the average wage of a household here in Tennessee. Yeah. The the average or the median household income in the state is somewhere around fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. And so this story sort of created a fervor uh, initially because I, I initially had the story that uh, was looking at the uh, total amount. Um, the Speaker's office initially did not respond to my request for comment despite having it for several Sounds hours. Sounds like another story. They sent me to um, uh, Senate, our House Majority Leader William Lamberth, who defended these uh, decisions and said they were conservative and that they, you know, despite increasing the size of government as well as uh, uh, the amount uh, that this is just to help, you know, get things be a little bit more functional. Uh, Interesting logic there coming from Republicans who often say they're fiscally conservative, but let's go down that rabbit hole. Uh, Then uh, after the story publishes, I hear from the speaker's office and they push back on the initial number and they say, actually, it hasn't gone up as much as you say it has. Um, Their line of logic is a little bit fuzzy to me. We later clarified uh, that the, the, the speaker did increase uh, a funding request to the tune of $7 million for the legislature. And we confirmed that the Senate didn't ask for that request and the governor didn't put that uh, willy nilly. It was at the request of Glenn Cassida, who needed three more million dollars for payroll purposes. Takes a lot to run the government, you know? I guess, but not in the Senate. So, but <laughs> anyways. And, uh, and and it's also, I think, noteworthy that some of the, uh, the groups that are espousing fiscal conservative policy, like the Beacon Center, like Americans for Prosperity, have not spoken out at all against this. That's right. Yeah. So we will, again, I, I've got more payroll requests out there. Uh, we are going to double down on uh, our information and the pushback that we got because I, I, I've been told uh, that the initial pushback we received is is probably not accurate, but we'll see what the, the records say. So more to come on that. Stay tuned, everyone. And then finally, uh, just kind of wanted to go over uh, the uh, kind of a, a, a bigger story that, you know, we didn't get to until later in the week, but uh, the governor's office uh, in its state of the state announced that it was going to have at least $25 million uh, in this year's budget for this education savings account, a.k.a. a vouchers plan. Uh, There were some questions raised about it, so uh, hopefully we can answer a few of those. Yeah, so let's talk about... Uh, the the budget line it says twenty five million. We were told that that was going to be about seventy three hundred dollars per student affected. We were told that there would be about five thousand students participating from this sum of money. Uh, but when you do that math, it it doesn't add up. Quick calculator. That's thirty six point five million. So that led to a follow up question for us. So um, I sent in a request to um, the administration. Essentially, they tried to clarify by saying uh, that was the first request that they were making, the 25 mil, that they're going to make another next year of that same amount. And that number that they gave was based on 70% of enrollment. So I guess to me, the question is, why 70? Why not 67%? Why not 79%? Why not 100%? So it, it, it seems a little odd that they would say, okay, we're going to come up with this $25 million figure, 
uh, on, on one end, and then you press a little bit further, and it's actually, okay, wait, 50 million in two years. And then in a Senate hearing, uh, the governor's director of policy, Tony Niknajad, who's really been kind of the, the force behind this effort, admitted that in a three-year period, it could be up to $100 million. And to clarify, when they initially announced the, the ESA initiative, the $25 million, they never said this isn't going to take effect immediately. I think most people were under the impression this is going to take effect in the next fiscal year. They never said this is going to be several years down the road. The governor's office has said that it will not roll out the actual ESA program until the 2021-2022 school year, which means it will have $50 million in the bank for that. Uh, one of the other in interesting elements of this is that they have admitted that this money will only be there for three years, essentially. So they could come back in the future and, quote, revisit the program, but they could also just stop giving that money, which ultimately goes to local school districts. Uh, it's not for the actual cost of the student. It's to pay this, this school that that student is being taken out of to make up for that difference. Democrats, of course, to be expected, have been um, outspoken about this being a bad plan. They said even before the governor announced that he was going to be doing ESAs, that any kind of voucher program would be bad public policy. Uh, Jeff Yarbrough in the Senate, he is the, the Senate minority leader, um, has been outspoken about this for a while. And, and we talked to him about it. You also talked to to Mike Stewart, the House Democratic Caucus chairman. Yeah, so he um, kind of initially didn't know what to say, went back, looked over the, uh, the funding, the money that we were talking about, and he, quote, referred to it as topsy-turvy. Uh, he said it looks like they're kind of patching together this program on the fly. Um, essentially, uh, Stewart was arguing that because the numbers aren't the, you know clear, uh, that it raises serious questions about the overall program. Uh, when I asked the same question to uh, Senator Bo Watson, who is the finance chairman, uh, he basically said that a lot of questions still have to be ironed out, and some of those details become a little bit more clear as they, these legislation, major pieces of legislation, work their way through committee. So we will see uh, that twenty-five million is at least flexible for now. It could go up, it could go down. We'll we'll stay tuned. This week on the podcast, I've got Dan Pabone, who's a board member of the Tennessee Medical Cannabis Trade Association. Thanks for coming on, Dan. Joel, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're going to dive a little bit into the uh, Tennessee Medical Cannabis Act, which comes from uh, Senator Janice Bowling and, and Representative Ron Travis. For those of you that may not know the legislation, give us a, a brief overview of sort of the guts of it. Yeah, so what this bill does is it seeks to set up a comprehensive, affordable, safe access to medical cannabis in Tennessee. If you're if you are a patient who suffers uh, from a number of conditions that are outlined in the bill, and you uh, go to the uh, Tennessee uh, Commission to get a, re a registry card, you can then take that card and go into a center, as we've defined it in the bill, and uh, purchase uh, medical cannabis to treat your symptoms. Uh, give a, a kind of a highlight of some of those maladies. I know you know it's kind of a long list that includes cancer, glaucoma. Yeah, it's chronic pain. Um, it is ALS, uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, I mean, there are there are a number of conditions, and we we try not to be 
over anticipating the number of conditions, but research and science has said things like Parkinson's, Tourette's syndrome, um, rheumatoid arthritis, cirrhotic arthritis, those types of things uh, do well under the treatment of medical cannabis. And so we tried to create a comprehensive list that would uh, give folks the most amount of relief that we could find. There have been several marijuana-related bills in the last few years on on this list of maladies that um, you could get this uh, with that I hadn't seen before is opioid addiction. Why include that one? Well, as as most people are finding out, um, either because they know someone um, or have seen a family member or just read a story about opioid addiction, we know that this is a uh, something that is eradicating um, and, and destroying many Tennessee lives and households. What, um, what we've seen from the research and the science is that medical cannabis can serve as a substitute for opioids and allow someone to uh, still manage their pain and or their addiction without possibly facing um, death, which is the alternative with opioid addiction. So uh, thus far, as of this recording, the bill hasn't been scheduled to be taken up in, in committee. Uh, what's the status of it? Right now, um, we are working with um, members inside the glass, uh, state leg- uh, senators and representatives, to share with them the concepts of the bill to get their feedback. I mean, the the, the m- probably the most important thing about this bill is it's an organic bill. So we've gotten thousands of calls from Tennesseans all over the state saying, "I suffer from this condition or that condition," or "Here's the story of my, um, you know, elderly grandmother who was uh, suffering from cancer and got an alternative." treatment with medical cannabis outside of the state, most mm-hmm. most likely. Um, but um, And so we're taking feedback and input from a number of different stakeholders and making sure we get the bill just exactly how we want it to, to be, to reflect the values of Tennessee, but also to provide affordable, safe access to medical cannabis. Um, at that point, um, and, th- and there are a number of legislators who have been working on this issue for a while, thankfully, so they've plowed the ground some. We've been working with them um, to try to find the best pathway forward uh, for this bill, both through the House and through the Senate. As you're meeting with lawmakers, what's the response been? Have there been some people that are, you know, you you didn't count in the yes column uh, at the beginning of this process and who now have turned to a yes? Are there people that are just flat out, hell no, I'm I'm always going to be that? Well, you know, I'll start with the Senator Bowling, who was a flat out uh, no way, no how um, just a year ago. And uh, through her own research and study and meeting with her constituents about this topic, she found that medical cannabis was indeed um, a great alternative to to opioids, um, but also uh, a great relief for a number of different conditions that she found. Looked at, she looked at studies in Israel and she looked at studies in other places and found that this is indeed something that Tennesseans should have the right to. Um, so you f- you have folks like Senator Bowling who are and and her. Uh, uh, colleagues who are interested in learning more. Um, there are some who say, I absolutely support this because of a relative or a, a, a someone I know who found relief with using medical cannabis. And then, of course, just like anything else, you have those who say, you know, it's federally illegal mm-hmm. and therefore I can't support it. Um, so it runs the gamut. What do you, I mean, one of the criticisms that I've heard is uh, there hasn't been any federal research on this. Uh, you know, What's the response to that? Because uh, clearly you can't because it's a, is it a Schedule One drug? It is a Schedule One drug, and there is actually research on medical cannabis um, done by uh, many peer-reviewed publications and scientists. 
that has had that has been done in the United States. I guess uh, the point being federally uh, performed research is what some of the people have criticized it for. Well, it is j- just to just to be clear on the record, the National Institute of Health, a federally funded organization, does uh, facilitate and allow for federal study of medical cannabis in different scenarios in the United States. Mm. What the criticism generally is, is there hasn't been enough research. And what we're finding is that the states are actually doing a a fair amount of research and many countries, Israel, Canada, places where it's fully legal are putting um, information, uh, making it available to everyone. And so they can really see that that the science and the research is there. And again, the biggest thing here is no one is obligated to take medical cannabis. This isn't something where, you know, everyone's going to, you know, suddenly sign up. This is for a very specific set of sick patients who have very um, uh, life-threatening conditions that science and research and anecdotes have found uh, gets relief from medical cannabis. Is there any, um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but is there any age limit on, on, you know, who can use it? You know, can, can you see a seven-year-old suffering from, uh, you know, um, epilepsy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can they use it? Yes. And as long as they have, uh, guidance and oversight by both a doctor, their, their guardian, their parent, um, and someone uh, who can verify, two doctors who can verify that the condition that they actually have would benefit from medical cannabis. And I can tell you that epilepsy is a big deal, mostly not in seven-year-olds, but in one-year-olds and two-year-olds and three-year-olds where the alternatives are, are, are much worse. So what it sounds like is you're not just calling up if you are struggling with back pain. I, I mean, I am right now, you know, I, I hurt myself while shoveling uh, in my yard the other day. Uh, you can't just call up a number and say, you know, man, I've got some back pain. Another person on the other end, nobody should have back pain. I've heard this is what happens in California in some instances. Uh, that doesn't go on under this legislation. We're, we want to make sure that there's medical supervision involved. So there's a couple of points in the in the legislation that requires this. One, you have to have a condition that's been diagnosed by a physician, a nurse practitioner, um, someone who's got a, a medical understanding. And then secondly, uh, the idea is that there will be on staff a medical professional in the um, in the center that will be there to consult with and work with you in order to find the right uh, level of, of uh, medicine and, and, and treat your condition accordingly. Take me through the, the back end of things. So once you can get your, uh, you know, essentially a prescription, even though it, it isn't per se, um, where do you get, you know, medical marijuana in Tennessee under this legislation? Under this legislation, you would get it um, in, a, in a center, which would also uh, be licensed to cultivate, uh, grow, and um and manufacture or, or create the oil that, uh, that uh, a patient generally needs. The, the, other, the other important thing about this bill is it doesn't contain the ability to smoke or uh, to smoke flour. So all we're talking about is uh, uh, oil that's derived from the plant. Okay, uh, so that essentially there's no smoke involved then? Correct. Okay, that, I feel like an, an initial version of this didn't have that. Is that is that right? That's right. It okay. got introduced with, um, with smokable flour, okay. and a lot of um, feedback we got was, you know, we do support this. 
um, but we don't want to have the actual raw flour available. Well, and I would think that that also, uh, some folks would criticize this because they could say, oh, it will be abused. So this would probably be an avenue that you're saying could undercut some of that argument. Um, one of the the things that I think is an interesting criticism is everybody says, this is a slippery slope, right? They say, if you introduce this, it's only a matter of time before recreational marijuana is is in everybody's uh, uh, eyesight. Uh, what do you what do you say about that? Well, the trade association is absolutely opposed to recreational um, cannabis. So I can say from our point of view, that is something we would not support. I think also... Um, when you when you look at both the science and research and the and the needs of the patients, um, those who are in most need of this relief are the ones who are probably the most adamant about gaining access to it. Um, their stories are basically: I either have to commit a felony or I have to leave the only home that I know, Tennessee to get the relief that I need. And to me, those are the probably the most compelling stories um, that, that exist. We have safeguards and sideboards in place with the amount that you can possess at any one time. Um, so, you know, if, if the people of Tennessee, um, you know, want to provide relief to patients that essentially felonizes folks to do so now, this is a bill that's going to take the, those fel- felony penalties away. So you served, uh, I think it's eight years in the Colorado legislature. Um, how would you compare, you know, where we're at today in Tennessee to, uh, you know, where Colorado used to be? I think Tennessee is light years ahead of where Colorado was. Um, and here's why. Colorado was one of the first to do these types of programs. Since then, 33 states around the country have um, learned lessons from Colorado and Washington and many other places on how to create the most robust, safeguarded uh, medical delivery system in the country. And I think Tennessee, as a result, has benefited from all of those um, lessons that have been learned using taxpayer dollars wisely, making sure there's medical supervision in place. And so I think this is light years ahead of where Colorado has been as far as any kind of its medical programs existed. So far, it sounds like the governor has expressed uh, hesitation, resistance to any form of of marijuana in Tennessee. Do you see any room for growth with him or or any possibility of him, you know, uh, just becoming more educated and changing his mind at some point? Well, I think like any new governor, um, you're, he's going to w- take the opportunity to watch the bill through the legislative process. Like any legislative process, there may be even more amendments along the way that we're not, um, you know, we, we may not be aware of yet. And then see at the end of the day, does the bill do in fact what we've said it does? Does it provide patients access? Does it have safeguards in place to prevent abuse uh, and dependency? Does it uh, create an affordable way for patients to get medicine? And I think if the answer to those three boxes is yes, again, he doesn't necessarily have to sign it, but I think he'd probably be inclined to take a close look and say, maybe this ought to be law in Tennessee. As we look to wrap up, uh, what's the polling been like uh, as you kind of travel around Tennessee? You know, obviously you talk to people, but have you you guys done any polls that say, you know, uh, how everyday Tennesseans feel about this? Well, if you know, again, if assuming this bill get uh, this bill gets to Governor Bill Lee's desk, uh, I would ask him to talk to 
you know, any number of Tennesseans from around the state. And eight out of 10 of those Tennesseans will tell him that they support medical cannabis. That's what our polling shows from um, district to district, from party to party. Uh, and it's, it's universally true in almost, um, in almost any poll that you look at. The people of Tennessee are far ahead of the lawmakers and the governor on this issue. Um, and I think that that's what the governor would find and that's what legislators will find if they poll their district. Dan Pabone with the Tennessee Medical Cannabis Trade Association. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joel. Anytime. And now we'll move on to our notebook dump of the week. The Senate Judiciary Committee approved an amendment to the Republicans' community oversight bill, the one that was going to restrict subpoena power for police oversight boards like the one in Nashville, uh, as well as tamp down on some of their membership requirements. The the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee approved an amendment that would actually allow these boards to have some version of subpoena power in which they can assign an independent investigator to petition a judge uh, to get that subpoena. Representative Andy Holt and Senator Joey Hensley, both Republicans, previously voted in Democratic primary elections. I found that out after looking through their voting history. Uh, it looks like Holt voted in the 2006 Democratic local Democratic primary, and Hensley voted in a Democratic primary uh, in 2000. Holt and Hensley both were sponsoring a bill that would have restricted such moves uh, and required party registration before voting in primary elections. The Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition held its annual Day on the Hill this past week. They got a couple hundred immigrants to come out for this. Uh, their focus was on a series of bills filed by freshman lawmaker Representative Bruce Griffey of Paris. He's a Republican who's been outspoken about illegal immigration. Uh, one of those bills would be to deny birth certificates to citizen babies who are born to to parents who are undocumented. Um, and he also had another that was filed uh, to restrict any kind of welfare benefits to uh, anyone who isn't a citizen, although it seems like that is a caption and that bill's in flux. But um, the point is that Bruce Griffey basically is making a point right now to, to focus on the immigration issue. And finally, former President George W. Bush is attending the Chancellor's Series at Vanderbilt University on Monday. As of this recording, uh, it is a closed-door discussion, but several lawmakers will be in attendance, thus forcing the House of Representatives to cancel its regularly scheduled floor session. Thanks again for listening to Grand Divisions. As always, we're available every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Please find us on Twitter and, and send us any suggestions, ideas that you may have at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, you can also email Natalie and I. We're uh, available anytime uh, online. This podcast is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.